This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco, this is Launchpad on Business Radio. Welcome to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. I'm Carl Ulrich. I'm Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and I co-host Launchpad with Rob Connybeer. Rob is a leading Silicon Valley venture capitalist, uh, managing director of Shasta Ventures, and Rob and I switch off hosting duties mostly from the Wharton School campus in San Francisco, where I happen to be today, but also sometimes from Seattle, sometimes from Philadelphia. We typically in the show, we do a deep dive in conversations with typically two entrepreneurs and talk about the challenges they have faced in launching, uh, growing and scaling their businesses. And we look for opportunities to underscore tools, methods and approaches that can improve your chances of success as an entrepreneur. But to start off the show, I'm joined on the line by Tom Stevens, who's the co-founder and CEO of TomBot. Tom, thanks for joining us. Carl, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. All right. So first things first, the you've got a great domain name, and I hope we'll spend a couple minutes on it a little later, but it's TomBot.com. Hopefully that was named after you, so TomBot.com. And uh, and so if, if our listeners, if you're, if you're someplace safe at a web browser, you can check out TomBot uh, while, we're, while we're talking. Uh, Tom, so take us back to the beginning. Actually, before we go back to the beginning, give us just give us the elevator pitch for TomBot. Certainly. Uh, TomBot makes robotic emotional support animals for people who are facing health adversities and cannot safely or practically care for a live animal. All right. Well, that's really concise. Give us another bit of description about what that... <laughs> That that's a little clinical. Tell us, uh, tell us, and uh, tell us a little bit more about what this robotic creature is. Sure, maybe maybe the best way to tell it is is in the story of of how we came in right. the scene. Um, the so my mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 2011, and of the many bad days we faced early on, by far the worst was the day I had to take away her dog for safety reasons. That launched me on a multi-year research and education effort uh, where I learned a great deal more about Alzheimer's and other causes for dementia and learned the benefits of uh, the medical benefits of live annual animal companions. Not only do they help in basic medical things such as reducing blood pressure and, you know, motivating people to be active, they actually... uh, uh, help seniors with dementia reduce their behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia. Uh, those symptoms include things like loneliness, depression, frustration, and in my mother's case, hallucinations and violent anger, um, and also reduce the need for certain kinds of medications, including psychotropic medications. Well, in my mother's case, she could no longer care safely for her animal, and so mm-hmm. I started looking into substitutes for live animals, and that's what brought us to Tombot. I see. All right. Well, tell us what your first product looks like. Certainly. So in our research, we learned that seniors with dementia, first of all, have a very strong preference for animals with which they're familiar. Mm. So dogs and cats as opposed to space aliens yeah. uh, or, or, or fictitious animals. 
Um, and then secondly, have a very strong preference for realism. Realism in their appearance, realism in their texture, but most importantly, realism in their behaviors. And being techies, my co-founders and I uh, didn't know how to do that. So we reached out to Hollywood and teamed up with the Jim Henson Creature Shop, the people behind Muppets and Sesame Street, to do all of our artistic design. And we have produced our first product, which is a Labrador Retriever puppy, but is what we believe to be the world's most realistic robotic animal. Hmm. And so I, I've got a question for you. I, I was, they have a high preference for realism. I was, uh, in a strange coincidence, I was a doctoral student in the 1980s in the MIT AI lab with a guy named Mark Rabert, who was the founder of Boston Dynamics. And many of our listeners will have seen YouTube videos of Boston Dynamics dogs and other creatures that are, uh, they're, they're kind of creepy. They're kind of scary looking in, in the way they behave. And, and I wonder how is it that you get realism in a, in a, in a Labrador puppy uh, when those guys, you know, a zillion PhDs end up with something that's stuck in what the roboticists sometimes call the uncanny, the uncanny valley? Uh, it's a great question. First of all, I, uh, I too studied this uh, while I was doing my master's at Stanford. I, uh, I studied the Uncanny Valley and learned quite a bit about it. But the, the basic theory uh, about whether a robot is going to be um, uh, desirable or is going to be creepy has a lot to do with the overall appearance of the robot. Mm. Um, and so Cynthia Brazil's work there from MIT's Media Lab uh, really demonstrated that cute and adorable were traits that the robots had to have, and her short-lived uh, robot Jibo uh, certainly mm. fit the bill. There. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Not not industrial at all, but uh, very cute, very adorable. Um, and the Boston Dynamics folks really are building robots for functionality, yeah. As a uh, in industrial settings, uh, as opposed to and, and originally in military settings. So their their goal wasn't to make a robot cute and cuddly, but rather to make a robot that'd be a very high performance um, service product. And, uh, uh, and it just happened to have four legs. Uh, yeah. so it was more of a coincidence than, than really a different philosophy and, and artistic design. But looking at, looking at the uncanny Valley. Um, Why don't you uh, just is, reiterate for the le less nerdy, I know I'm with a kindred spirit, but for the less nerdy uh, cohort of our listeners, remind us what the Uncanny Valley is. Certainly. It's a theory that was proposed by a Japanese roboticist by the name of Mori, M-O-R-I, in the early 70s. And, uh, and it built on work that was done by Freud and, and Jung uh, uh, at the turn of the century. And it's the idea that as, as things become more realistic, um, we prefer them until they get to a certain point, and then we're sort of creeped out by them, or the, the translated word is uncanny. Mm -hmm. And they stay uncanny to us until they're indistinguishable from the real thing, and then we prefer them again. So that gap in preference is called the uncanny valley. Yeah. Well, in looking at the research on the Uncanny Valley, there, first of all, there is something to it. Um, they've done fMRI studies. They can show where in the brain that uncanny reaction occurs. 
But the studies were limited to humans looking at humanoid uh, robots or even monkeys looking at images, um, sort of uncanny images of monkeys. And the data all suggested that, that within the species, that uncanny effect would be very profound. And I didn't believe that cross-species that would actually be the case. So we began studying that. Um, We went through multiple rounds of customer studies with increasingly realistic prototypes. And and once again, with the great work of Jim Henson's Creature Shop. And what our our third round, um, we're on our fifth generation now, but our third round of prototypes should have been absolutely creepy, absolutely uncanny by Maury's theory. And in fact, they weren't. They were strongly preferred over toy-like or cartoon-like appearance uh, robots. So so we pushed that envelope, and what we found all along is the further, the closer we got to realism, the the stronger the preference with no negative uh, or virtually no negative feedback along that process to the point where many people confuse our robot as a real as a real animal, um, even even up close, uh, and uh, and so we went in that direction, and and certainly the customer appeal has has uh, we've benefited from that. Yeah, well, so uh, tell us a little bit about a little bit more about the 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 puppy itself, the puppy robot itself. So uh, and maybe describe a little bit um what it does i mean what what makes it what makes this fifth generation so realistic yeah so with my mother with dementia we learned that uh, seniors with dementia spend most of the day or much of the day at least in a seated position either on a sofa or a chair or in my mother's case in a recliner um and so for something to be appealing to them they would need to be in close physical proximity to it Mm -hmm. um But we also learned for seniors with dementia that anything on the ground is an extreme tripping hazard. Mm. So we knew from those two data points that we were we would need um, a lap dog or a lap animal, something Mm. that would lay comfortably on their lap or on a table or chair close by, something that they could remain in close physical contact. So our puppy is a lap dog. uh, we also we had a, a version of this that had mechanicals in the legs so it could stand up and roll over. Uh, however, we found that 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 didn't lead to an obvious medical benefit. It just mm. increased the weight of the robot and the cost of the robot. So we stripped that out and and basically the robot's capable of laying um, uh, is a static position on somebody's lap, and all of the animation is in the in the face in the mouth, the neck, uh, the ears, and the tail. Hmm. And with our prototype robot, we actually have 16 motors uh, in that. Uh, We'll have fewer than that in the production version. But in the neck alone, we have seven motors. And it gives the robot its not only its tremendous range of motion, but also its fine expressiveness. And so it can accurately emulate the expressions of a live animal. That's great. And so, and then it has, did I understand correctly that it also has some interactivity? It has some sensors or other interactivity? Yeah. It is fully interactive. That's correct. So yeah. we, uh, it's covered with touch sensors mm-hmm. and can tell how and where it's being touched. Um, it, it 
responds to voice uh, commands, uh, but only to her name. Uh, mm-hmm. So the robot comes standard as Jenny, but uh, with the smartphone app, people are able to rename the robot to whatever they like, and then it will only respond to commands with that name. Uh, it can feel itself being moved, and a few other sensors that we're not ready to talk about, yeah. um, but, but help it understand its environment and respond uh, in a context that approximates uh, that of a live animal. Yeah. How, how, how much brain function has to be inhibited for me? Well, what's the polite way to ask this? Do, do, do some of the users believe this is a real pet, or are, are they, do most people suspend disbelief and it still provides benefit? That was a question that we wanted to ask as well. Uh, uh, in that we were uncertain the level of fidelity of mm-hmm. the artistry in the product. We assumed that if someone was late in their dementia uh, stage, they would probably be less discerning than someone who was earlier uh, in, their, uh, in their disease progression. Um, but what we learned is the people that need the robot the most, the people that with moderate to severe dementia, for those people, it's actually more difficult to introduce a new object and mm. have them actually achieve emotional attachment. Emotional attachment is really the key to providing the medical benefit. Um, and so what we've learned is that we had to make the robot better. Uh, it had to be more appealing to people that were earlier in mm. their disease progression, even for people that are pre-dementia with mild cognitive impairment. That's, that's not normal cognitive decline due to aging. That's, that's cognitive um, impairment due to, uh, to the, some kind of disease, underlying disease. But it needs to be appealing. But these are people who can still live alone, could still choose to live, uh, or take care of a live animal. Um, and for these people, we wanted to make it good enough to appeal to them as well. Yeah. And how would they describe... I mean, I, I, I suppose on the one hand... I'm remembering when my kids were little, there was a a very non-realistic toy called a Tamagotchi, which was yep. just beeped and yep. buzzed and vibrated when you took care of it. And kids could get attached to even that, which had nothing, was not at all realistic. So I'm wondering what's really the key to attachment? Uh, I, there, There's quite a bit of research in this area. There's some uh, theories that we have uh, uh, that are proprietary as well. But the, the, the underlying piece there is that humans are hardwired to take care of things. Mm-hmm. Um, human babies, unlike most uh, babies in the, um, the animal kingdom, uh, human babies are highly attritional, meaning that they need a lot of care for a mm. long time. Otherwise, they won't survive. And so we as a species are hardwired to take care of them. Uh, and that extends to other things, such as live animals, such as Tomagachi. So we, there's, there's desire there to take care of it. Uh, and what we're looking to do is stimulate those instinctual uh, traits. Uh, and so the person will want to take care of it and through caring for it, receive the medical benefit. Yeah. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 132, uh, business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm Carl Ulrich, and I'm speaking with Tom Stevens, who's the founder and CEO of TomBot. Um, Tom, so so oh, one last one last question before I, I get you to tell us a little bit more about the journey. But um, 
you you are you mentioned pre-orders pre-production so i think you're uh, i think you're, you're taking orders now but not yet shipping what what's the price point for for this product yeah. the product suggested list is 449 dollars mm-hmm. um, and that's before insurance reimbursements okay and so we wanted it to be as affordable to as many people as possible, even without an insurance reimbursement. Uh, however, if it is prescribed for an adverse, a health adversity where there's data that uh, the carriers believe is, is compelling, they could get, uh, uh, get substantial reduction in the out-of-pocket costs. And we've had pre-orders uh, and waitlist customers for other health adversities such as children with autism, Yep. Adults with major depressive disorder, PTSD, anxiety, bipolar disorder, and for hospitals, uh, for uh, long inpatient stays, um, mm-hmm. particularly in pediatric or uh, for elderly folks in the hospital. Yeah. All right. So I want to hear uh, about the the business journey. If I read between the lines, uh, looking at Crunchbase and a few other things, You've been at you've been at this a, a few years, and if I if I can make a few inferences, it looks like you basically took a million dollars of your own money and put it against this. Um, tell me tell me what possessed you to do that, and and how you proceeded to to identify this as more than just something to do for your mom, but a real business opportunity. Yeah. Sure, and uh, it, the, the journey actually starts before my mother's diagnosis. Um, my two Tombot co-founders and I built a prior startup into one of the world's largest litigation automation companies, and we had a successful exit in 2011, the same year that my mother was diagnosed. Okay, but I got to interrupt you, Tom. What is litigation automation? Yeah, I was hoping you wouldn't go there, but uh, <laughs> okay, very no one, quickly. No one, no one wants to hear about lawyers. Uh, <laughs> uh, no offense to the lawyers out there, but. Um, uh, so in, uh, in U.S. litigation, um, most people are familiar with the discovery process yep. as it relates to things like depositions. Uh, in large-scale litigation where two large corporations are suing each other or maybe it's a, uh, a large uh, governmental investigation into a corporation, um, there's a discovery, part of the discovery process is the exchange of documents. Yeah. And for cases that we worked on, they typically started at a million documents, and we yeah, had a few okay. cases that were yeah. over a billion. And so beyond the human scale to manage, and so we did all the technical work Got to it. collect that information, organize it, and help the attorneys do the review and actually provided review services. As all well. right. So so I get it. So this this is your redemption, attempt at redemption. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. But how is it that two the three founders of a, of a yeah, litigation automation company would have the relevant skills and capabilities to do this. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's sort of a, a quirky combination of talents. Um, so when my mom was diagnosed, uh, um, my, my one partner, Hank, he had been full, he became fully retired after our exit. Not my other partner, Jesse continued to work in the, in the acquired, uh, mm-hmm. company. Um, but we all had sort of a different set of skills, um, both before and developed since, that pointed us towards robots. Um, we, we're, we're, we're techie folks from our roots, and robots are nothing more than computers that move. Um, the movement is, is obviously a big, a big part of it, but um, 
but controlling a robot is really a, a computer and a software. Uh, and so it was it was very familiar to us. And so as as my co-founders and I explored robotics, it was it was something that was um, that was a fairly easy transition to get into. Mm-hmm. Um, my uh, my one co-founder Hank, he also has a very strong background in consumer electronics manufacturing, and so understanding really how things get made and, and how to manage production environments, how to do cost control and, and things of that sort. So it was not a big leap uh, to jump into this. Um, and, and when I was in college the first time, I was pre-med. So getting into something that was a medical device felt somewhat familiar, at least yeah. at first. I've, I've learned a lot since then that was uh, completely new to me. But but it wasn't such a big leap to do this. But But beginning in 2011, didn't really set out to develop a product, really set out to learn um, what existing substitutes for live animals there were. Mm-hmm. And the further got in, I got into this, the more I realized that, first of all, my mother's story wasn't unique, um, that there are millions of people that can't safely or practically care for a live animal, but also that there was a big gap in the marketplace, that even though there was quite a bit of peer-reviewed science that suggested products like this could work, there was a dearth of products that were out there really filling the need. And from my mother's perspective, nothing that had product market fit. Mm-hmm. So it became, it became clear, and through my master's at Stanford's business school, um, that there was an opportunity here and there was a way to apply some of the business school uh, disciplines to really learning what that product should be without carrying into it the bias that a robot is necessarily the right solution. Yeah. Well, how did you, it's, it strikes me if I were giving you advice back in 2011, I would have said to me, the, the, the pain is real. Like the, the, the market need is real. I would have seen this as primarily a question of technology risk. Could you create something that's good enough? Um, how, first of all, am I right in that assessment? And if so, how did you go about mitigating that risk? How did you discover that? Yeah, there's something I, we can do it. Um, so first of all, you're right. Uh, the market need is tremendous. It's actually much larger than I realized. Um, there are over 15 million um, people in the U.S., seniors in the U.S., with either dementia or pre-dementia mild cognitive impairment, a couple hundred million people around the world. So that alone, that market segment alone, big enough to justify a business. So that was that reinforced that that there was something worth pursuing. But the other was was being very careful once again, not to bring in a bias as to what people wanted, but really learn what people wanted. And, you know, I grew up on the Coke versus Pepsi commercials, uh, also uh, spent some time in human-centered design. Uh, And so bringing those techniques in and giving people choices and understanding what they liked better and why they liked it better um, uh, was a fairly easy process to get into. Mm-hmm. I also I want to make sure I uh, call out to the good folks at Georgia Tech and the University of Illinois. They have human robotics interaction labs at mm-hmm. both universities that specialize in seniors, and they were very helpful in developing the methodologies um, for our studies. 
because for many seniors with dementia, they don't have the ability to verbally articulate the preference. Yeah. So we've had to find another way to, to discern that preference. Yeah. But we just started um, showing them things. We had we began with hypotheses and said, okay, we believe that um, they're going to prefer X over Y. And so we would show them X and Y and either confirm or reject the hypothesis, uh, 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 the hypothesis rather. And we went through, once again, multiple rounds of that with very large numbers of seniors with dementia. Um, probably the, the easiest part of this whole journey was convincing uh, senior care professionals um, that, that, that we needed their help. Mm-hmm. Um, the people that understand the problem the most, the people who are dealing with this day in, day out, realize that it's a terrible need, uh, and anybody who's willing to work on this is worth their time. And so we've had quite literally thousands of senior care professionals that have helped us on this journey. Wow. So I, I saw that, that you ran a, a Kickstarter, and you had 233 people who, who pledged some money. Um, presumably that was done a little more recently in the process. I, I wouldn't expect that audience to be exactly in your target segment. And I wonder if you can walk us through a little bit why you did that and what you learned from that. So lots of good lessons uh, from that. Um, But the reason we did it was we wanted to to do some test marketing to see what the general public's reaction was going to be. Mm -hmm. We also wanted to generate a little bit of media attention. Um, And the media attention, first of all, would, would help expand our our, our sales potentially, but also demonstrate to potential investors that this is something that the public is actually interested in. It's not another widget that just hides in a closet somewhere um, desperate for attention, but rather we could generate the kind of attention um, necessary for a high-volume production uh, to succeed. And so that was, a, that was a very limited effort that mm-hmm. we did with Kickstarter. Um, we since closed the the pre-orders uh, and have been building a wait list uh, and without taking people's money. Um, we want to make sure that we're very close to shipment before yeah. we take anybody else's money. Yeah. Um, but that now has many thousands of wow. customers on that, and that represents you know two to three times that number in robots. Uh, wow. Many of many of the people that have uh, joined the waitlist are businesses. Yeah, they're assisted living facilities, they're hospitals, they're medical clinics, and um, and their opening orders are for multiple robots. Right. So and and uh, we're running out of time, but quickly, I got to ask what what do you think the crossover potential is? Do you think this is that an important adjacency will be the average person who just wants uh, a, pet, a lower maintenance pet. So we will sell a robot to anyone who wants to buy it. Yep. Uh, even though it will be an FDA medical device and there will be insurance reimbursements, um, we'll sell it to anybody who would like one. And we have quite a few people that have approached us and said, hey, I've got young kids yeah. that just aren't ready for a live animal. This would be a great training yeah. tool, if nothing else. Um, but from a, from a business look ahead, we want to keep investing our energy in the science. Yep. Um, we want to make sure that all of our uh, all of our uh, claims are evidence-based mm-hmm. um, and that we're actually uh, providing good. And we view ourselves as a social enterprise. We're really trying to make an impact on, um, on the quality of life for people who 
cannot uh, uh, own a own a live animal, and it just happens to be an extremely large number of people. Yeah. All right. Well, I I mentioned at the beginning I did want to hear about the name. This is my last question. Maybe we can keep a, a quick answer. But I I don't I don't imagine you you growing up said I really want to com- create a company called the Tombot. So where where I mean it's a great name, but where did the name come from? Yeah. My mom was the inspiration for many things about yeah. the company, including the name. She All said right. uh, I said, well, I'm going to work on a a robot tree, mom. She says, well, what are you going to name it? I go, I don't know. She says, well, name it Tom. I go, well, maybe not Tom exactly, but we'll do something like that. So she was very, uh, very much a part of this journey and uh, a huge fan of, of me working on this for her. All right. Well, Tom, thanks so much for making the time. It's super interesting. Thank you very much, Carl. Thanks for All right. For more information, you guys know where to go. Tombot.com. Tombot.com. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.